This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 17. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, I am a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Mark. For those of you who don't know me, um, Mary's already let the cat out of the bag by telling you I'm the treasurer here. So, uh, but more of that later, perhaps. So um, this morning, we're, we're continuing our series on making Jesus known. And we come to the topic surrounding the subversive values of Jesus. Now, subversives, um, sometimes for good reason, tend to get a bad press, don't they? And uh, so here's a photo of someone who um, was subversive. Uh, I think this is probably more appropriate to the 9.30. The 9.30 knew exactly who this was. I don't know whether any of you know who this was. Yeah, yeah, well done, whoever that was. Yeah, yeah, you're obviously of a generation to know who the, the, to, what black and white photographs are, I think. Um, but then, so, so he was a subversive, wasn't he? So he tried to subvert the, uh, the, the British uh, establishment. And then you've got um, this, this lot. So this is the, um, the People's Front of Judea, uh, not to be confused with the Judean People's Front or the Popular Front of Judea, who's actually only one person, so not very popular at all. I would suggest that to most law-abiding citizens, subversion is something we would not naturally subscribe to. The dictionary definition is seeking or intended to subvert an established system or institution. Now, Jean always quotes Greek, doesn't he? But I have not a clue about Greek, I'll be honest with you. So I'm going to quote some Latin now. So the word comes <laughs> from Latin... Uh, sub means from below, and vertere means to turn. So to subvert 
is to turn things upside down, especially the established system or status quo from below. Now apparently, and I know this is hard to believe, but somewhat ironically, I used to behave very subversively in my Latin lessons when I was at school. And with a surname beginning towards the end of the alphabet, um, I was put near the back of the class always. Um, and although I am a bit ashamed to say it, I used to muck about terribly. I know that's really hard for you to believe, isn't it, this morning? At one stage, I was actually accused of preventing the rest of the class from learning. And I think this was in my termly report. So you can imagine what trouble I got into when I got home. But my subversion actually paid off because after one term, I was moved to a different subject. The teacher had had enough. And so I studied classical civilization or ancient history, which I actually loved. Now, as an aside, the, um, the Latin teacher, whose unflattering nickname was Rat, um, would deal with subversion in class by hurling the board rubber. Remember those? Very hard at the offending boy. I've still got the scar tissue on my, on my arm. Um, he was surprisingly accurate. I think he'd had about 40 years um, practice, uh, and I think he fought in the Second World War as well, so, you know, probably... But nowadays, although I might have been subversive in my youth, I actually think of myself as the, the opposite of subversive. I quite enjoy the status quo. I'm talking about the concept, not the music here, by the way. Um, I think it must be an age thing. But our government spends billions on trying to prevent subversion, subversive activity. They have an extensive list of prescribed organisations, meaning that just being a member of one of the groups is a criminal offence, whether the individual is involved in subversive activity or not. Subversion is therefore seen often as a negative activity, certainly by the state. And yet this morning we're thinking about Jesus and his subversive nature, his subversive teachings. And hopefully by, you know, in, in, in a few minutes' time, we'll be able to investigate how this negative trait can be seen to be positive. So in the passage from Luke that uh, Alwyn just read to us, we hear a parable about two people who are praying in the temple. So nothing unusual about that. And this is then followed by a scene where Jesus blesses children. Now, at first glance, neither seems to be subversive. But let's look a little bit more closely at the verses. So firstly, the parable. So the first thing to notice about this parable is to whom it is addressed. Verse 9 tells us that Jesus told the parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Well, so it's not for me then. I think it is. I think I would suggest it's exactly for me and for all of us here this morning. So as I said, the scene is set in the temple. Two men are praying, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now the Pharisee here represents the establishment, someone who is sure of his position in society, and who also believes that his salvation is assured. It's because of the way he lives, because of the rules that he keeps. Now, he fasts twice a week, 
So these, these modern fatty diets are not particularly modern, are they? Been going on for years. And he gives a tenth of his income away. So this is where the treasurer bit comes in because I'm warming to him already. Now, in Jewish society at the time, he would have been classed as a model citizen, someone to be looked up to, unlike the other man who was praying, who was considered the lowest of the low. Tax collectors were despised. They were collaborators with the Roman Empire. They tended to be well-paid, and they also tended to rip off the Jewish people that they were taxing. They were hated. And to Jesus' followers' ears, it would have been obvious who the good guy was, the Pharisee. But Jesus turns this concept on its head. Because the person who walks away justified before God was not the pillar of the establishment, but rather the outcast. And I can hear the good citizens who are listening grumbling, muttering to themselves about what society would be like if people aspired to be tax collectors. Where would we be? Society would fall. You can just imagine it, can't you? But the reason for this turn of events, the reason why the tax collector was justified and not the Pharisee, was that the Pharisee was so self-assured, so superior... He did not even consider that he might be less than perfect and so in actual need of God's mercy. Contrastingly, the tax collector would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast. He admitted to God that he was a sinner and in desperate need of his mercy. So on first reading, this parable seems quite straightforward, doesn't it? The man who was up himself received his comeuppance. The man who was humble was rewarded. But put into the context of first century Jewish society, this message was very subversive. And Jesus ended the parable with these words. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. A message to all the Jewish leaders who are so sure of their position in society, so certain in their religious beliefs. It could be seen as a very inflammatory statement, certainly subversive. And then straight after the parable, we have another scene. And here, people are bringing their children for Jesus to lay his hands on them for blessing. And this would not have been an unusual event, uh, and it is still quite common in some parts of the world. Now, Priscilla, my wife, and I have been privileged to visit the Philippines on a couple of occasions. Our friends Rob and Elaine were missionaries out there, Sadly, uh, Rob passed away last year, but Elaine remains in the Philippines, in the heart of the local community. And when we first went out there, I was um, somewhat taken aback by the fact that babies would be offered to me by total strangers. 
Now, I didn't have a clue what was going on the first time this happened, but Elaine explained to me that I was being asked to bless the child. And as a Westerner, it was assumed that I was wealthier than the, than the local population. And considering that most of the locals lived in one-bedroom huts with, um, with no running water, no electricity, sort of things that get blown away in typhoons, which are, which are sort of common down there, it was a pretty safe bet that I was wealthier. And so by blessing the child, it was, um, I was somehow conferring some of my good fortune upon the baby. I became quite an expert at the end of the visit, I can tell you. And so here we have parents bringing their, baby, their babies to be blessed. Now the disciples either thought that Jesus was too tired to bother, or that it was a waste of his time, whatever. Either way, they tried to prevent the parents from bringing their children to him. But Jesus was having none of it. He rebukes the disciples, calls the children, and blesses them. And the scene ends with Jesus saying something else pretty radical. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. His message is clear. The kingdom of God is not for the elite, but it's for the lowly, the marginalised, the easy-to-ignore members of society. Again, a pretty inflammatory and subversive concept. So what can we take from these verses? Now, as with much of Jesus' teaching, we can read things in different ways, can't we? On a personal level, the messages of the parable and the blessing of the babies are very strong and challenging. The parable warns us against being self-righteous, looking down on others who we consider to be less worthy than us. It's very easy, isn't it? Well, it certainly is for me, to be so sure of our faith and the way that we do things to feel superior to those who don't seem to have a clue, quite honestly, or who don't share our societal norms or beliefs. And Priscilla has to warn me from time to time not to be critical of others. I call it not suffering fools gladly. Uh, she calls it being curmudgeonly. I'll let you be the judge of who's right and who's wrong in that situation. Yeah, I'll give you credit, it's not me. But the warning is clear in the parable. Self-assuredness alone is no guarantee of salvation. We need to recognise that we are all sinners and have all fallen short of God's standard. We need to ask for forgiveness and trust in the salvation of Jesus. And similarly, we need to have a childlike faith. Now, I don't mean a naivety in the way that we approach things, but rather a trusting faith, relying upon God to provide for and to lead us as a mother and father provide for and lead their children. So those are the immediate personal messages. But there is a bigger picture. 
These two instances in Jesus' ministry follow a pattern of subversion against the Jewish leaders and the chief priests at the time. And there are many, many times when Jesus goes against the authorities, aren't there, in his ministry. One of his close companions, for goodness sake, was Simon the Zealot. I mean, that's like saying Mark the Revolutionary. It's a bit of a giveaway, that name, isn't it? He was keen on overthrowing the Roman occupation. Jesus often healed people on the Sabbath. That was pretty radical at the time. He consorted with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with the ceremonially unclean. He lived a life of poverty. He had no fixed address. He lived on the margins with a bunch of similarly socially marginalised followers. His credit rating would have been appalling. He overturned the money changers' temples in the temple courts. And if that wasn't inflammatory, I don't know what was. And he rode into Jerusalem with the crowds proclaiming Hosanna. Many of his teachings went completely against the Jewish establishment. And he was certainly a scourge of the rich and powerful. Jesus has most of the characteristics, doesn't he, of a revolutionary activist. And he was so subversive that the Jewish leaders conspired to kill him and succeeded in doing so with the help of the Roman occupiers. Now, had he been mild-mannered, always looking to please everybody, had he kept his nose clean, he would never have been seen as a threat wouldn't have been bothered with. But it is exactly this subversion that makes Jesus' message so powerful. He was killed for his radical words and actions, but then his resurrection following his death on the cross proves that he really was and is the Son of God. It ties everything together make sense of all his radical beliefs and teachings. So I began by suggesting that subversion is perhaps not our natural state. It makes us feel uncomfortable as it rocks the boat and challenges our status quo. But if we follow Jesus, should we not seek to be subversive? Should we just accept things in our society as they are? Shrugging our shoulders as we drive or walk to church on a Sunday morning? Or should we be actively challenging things? And if we look back over the history of the Christian church, there have been many, many Christians who have not been content to simply sit back and accept things, be non-controversial. When I was preparing this, the, the name of William Wilberforce came to mind. A Christian member of Parliament who was absolutely not content with the status quo and who worked tirelessly to abolish slavery over many years. And he succeeded, didn't he, against all the odds. The British establishment and the empire at the time were totally reliant upon slavery 
for much of its wealth. The Church of England, unfortunately, also has history here. And in Bristol, the centre of the slave trade, when one of the Wilberforce's early bills was defeated in Parliament, all the church bells in the city rang out in celebration. But against the odds, he succeeded. His subversion was rewarded. His faith was rewarded. And there have been many other examples of Christian men and women who've been subversive and who've overturned the status quo. I'm sure you can think of them. Names such as Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, Florence Nightingale. These are just some examples that I could think of. People who lived their faith to the huge benefit of fellow citizens and society as a whole. But it is very difficult, isn't it, to be subversive? If you've got a career, you've got a mortgage, you've got a car, perhaps, a family. We've just got too much to lose, haven't we? And if we look around us, even here in Salisbury, which must rank as one of the most comfortable parts of the country, we can find many instances where there is poverty, unfairness and injustice. So do we just simply shrug our shoulders and think that this is the way that things are and that we can't do about, uh, anything about it on our own? Or do we actually seek to change things for the better? Do we seek to influence society and people around us by living our faith in a practical way? We perhaps sort of bemoan the state of the church. We bemoan poor attendance on a Sunday, not here, but other, way, other places. Decline in moral standards, perhaps. Growth in radical atheism. The list goes on, things that we moan about. But are we prepared to stand up against the societal norms of our times and be radical and subversive? just as Jesus was. Well, I leave that thought with you. Amen.